Well, my sermon title for today is taken from the first triumphal entry of Jesus. And this is a different kind of triumphal entry. A different kind of triumphal entry. Okay. Behold your king. Behold your king. Who is this king? Remember? Behold your king. He is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. So says the prophet Zechariah from Zechariah 9.9. And you can see it. I think uh, Jonah put the references uh, in the Gospels in the insert. So says the prophet of Zechariah about the coming Jewish Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. I guess he also means for the guys to rejoice, but it's addressed to the daughters. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, for your king is coming. He's righteous and he's bringing salvation. So what he's bringing is he's, he's writing in. This is the good news of great joy that the angels sang about to the shepherds at Bethlehem so many years ago. This is it. The good news of great joy that was for all the people. The moment had finally arrived. The Messiah has come, righteous and bringing salvation. Boom. Here he is. He's coming formally into Jerusalem. This is the event that we celebrate today, the day that we call Palm Sunday, as I mentioned earlier. It is the day that Jesus formally entered Jerusalem at the beginning of what we now call Holy Week. You all know this. In a few short days to come, Jesus would minister in Jerusalem, teach his disciples, and celebrate a Passover meal where he introduced a new covenant in his blood, which we celebrate once a month in our tradition as communion. After that, after that, he washed the disciples' feet. You remember that? I wish I could just preach on that. <laughs> but he washed the disciples' feet. He prayed for us all, even today. And he walked with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he taught while he walked. And there are whole chapters in the Gospel of John of what he said as they walked. And it was there at the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed again. He was arrested and he was brought to trial. And he was tried and although he was not guilty of anything deserving death, he was condemned to die on a cross like a common criminal. We remember that day and call it what? Good Friday. Which we will celebrate this week with our Tenembrae service. Good Friday. Good Friday. I think I mentioned it before. What an odd name to call the day that Jesus was crucified. Like I said before, it's a riddle. It's kind of a riddle that should make you ask the question like I did. If Jesus died on what we call Good Friday, are you kidding? Why do we call that good? Well, the answer is that it was good for us because he was put to death not for his own sins, because he's righteous, but he was put to death for our sins, yours and mine, to fully pay the penalty, to free us from guilt and death and shame. 
That's why we call it Good Friday. All we need to do to have it is to repent and believe in Jesus. This is the good news of great joy that's for all the people, for you and me right now. And that's why we call it Good Friday. Then, you know the story, three days later, God raised him from the dead to prove that he had conquered sin and death for us. And he did. He proved it. He conquered sin and death. That's what he was doing on the cross, and he proved it three days later by raising him from the dead. So the Holy Week starts with what we now call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as the humble King of Kings, righteous and having salvation. Well, today, we'll be looking at a different kind of triumphal entry into Jerusalem, an entry not of Jesus himself on a donkey, but an entry of the gospel of Jesus into Jerusalem. The gospel, the good news of great joy for all the people. But the problem was that the gospel was certainly available to the Jews, but it was not yet freely available to all the people. It was being encumbered by Jewish customs. So the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles entered Jerusalem, not carried by a donkey. (laughs) I hope Barnabas and Paul will forgive me about this in heaven. Not carried by a donkey, but carried by Paul and Barnabas, God's humble servants. Maybe they'll give me grace when we get up to heaven. Did you call us donkeys? No, I didn't. They came to me with the church leaders to resolve these encumbrances so that the gospel of Jesus could move out freely to all the people as God intended it to do. Yes, this was a different kind of triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Just as Christ came into Jerusalem, righteous and bringing salvation, so now the body of Christ came together into Jerusalem to make sure the message of salvation, the gospel, is brought freely to all the people, Jews and non-Jews alike. What I want to do today, what I want to do today, because it kind of fits with our theme and we thought that there was an intersection here with Palm Sunday. What I want to do today is explore with you what happened leading up to this gathering called the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, what was being debated in the council, and what resulted. Then we'll briefly look at another debate at the very end of Acts chapter 15. We'll just do that very briefly between Paul and Barnabas, and we'll see what resulted. My hope is to show how these debates illustrate two important issues related to the advance of the gospel and the accomplishment of the Great Commission, and how they consist of a tension between two appropriate concerns. Both of these debates actually consist of a tension between two appropriate things. Wow. And I want to show how they actually apply to us today. So there is a lot to learn here, a lot to learn. So let's dive into Acts 15, starting with this different kind of triumphal entry. But before we do, let me just pray. Lord God, there's just so much here to unpack. God, I pray that you would be with my tongue, be with our hearts, be with our minds. Uh, Guide us. Jesus, enter into our gates, into our hearts today. 
and help us to understand these spiritual truths. Give us a passion like Paul and Barnabas had. In an appropriate way, God, we just pray that you would just move us forward into this work that you've called us to do, this life that we have in Christ. God, we just thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, our story begins with Paul and Barnabas back at Antioch. They had just returned from their first missionary journey. Remember where they went to Cyprus and went to the, where Asia Minor is now? Remember the uh, pagan potential that uh, Jonah talked about last week, the reception or lack thereof in Iconium they got and so forth. So they were out on their missionary journey. They came back to Antioch and they were together with the church for some time when some men from Judea came and they began claiming something. They began claiming that the new Gentile believers could not be saved from their sins unless they were circumcised according to the customs of Moses. They were claiming that the Gentile believers could not be saved unless they were circumcised according to the custom of Moses. You can imagine the reception they got. (laughs) You can imagine this caused quite a stir. Quite a stir in Antioch and other places because this was not at all what the Apostle Paul was preaching. He was preaching that we are saved from our sins through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive the free gift of forgiveness and freedom when we repent and believe in Jesus, believing in what he did for us on the cross. This is the gospel that the Apostle Paul was preaching This is the good news of great joy. But the men from Judea were encumbering this gospel with Jewish customs. And these encumbrances threatened to obstruct the free advance of the gospel to the Gentiles. They were getting in the way. The the gospel to all the people. The good news of great joy was being obstructed from going to all the people. You know, I love Isaiah 40. It is the call to John the Baptist. It is a call to all of us to lower the mountains, fill in the valleys, straighten out the curves, and make the rough places plain so that people can come to Jesus. But these guys were taking these Jewish customs and they were obstructing the path to Jesus. That was what was going on. So it says there was no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas. My friends, this was not a small deal. This was not um, the kind of thing where you could just say, we'll just overlook that. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal. This was a big deal. The purity of the gospel was at stake here. How we share the gospel today was at stake here. It was. I won't get too graphic on you, but it was at stake. So the church at Antioch appointed Paul, Barnabas, and some others to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. About this question. Here's the question that they went with. Do, do Gentile believers, not talking about Jewish believers, do Gentile believers have to be circumcised? And keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Do they? Do they? 
That's the question. They were carrying that question with them, and they were carrying the gospel to the Gentiles with them as they traveled from Antioch and entered Jerusalem. When they arrived, they shared with the apostles, elders, and others what God had done through them among the Gentiles. They didn't say, hey, look what we did. (laughs) They shared what God had done among the Gentiles. And so they gathered together to consider the matter. So the body of Christ came together in Jerusalem. And there was much debate, much debate, going back and forth. Peter stood up and reminded everybody about the way God had directed him to first bring the gospel, remember, to the Gentiles. You remember the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? Peter said that God gave them, the uncircumcised believers, God gave them the Holy Spirit and cleansed their hearts by faith when they were just uncircumcised. That's what basically he's saying. Just as he had done to the Jewish circumcised believers. And God made no distinction in giving the Holy Spirit between the circumcised Jews and the uncircumcised uh, uh, Gentiles. No distinction. Okay, so that's what was going on here in this debate. Back and forth, back and forth. You can imagine um, each side. But before we take sides in this debate, and if you got my notes, you know that I'd, I'd spend some time just identifying what, if I was on this side, what would I be saying? If, was, if I was on this side, what would I be saying? <laughs> but before we take sides in this debate, which we want to do, I actually do have a side, obviously, um, and we fin- finish hearing what Paul, Peter has to say, because Peter's not done yet, we need to stop and consider what the Jews believed about circumcision in the law of Moses. Let's just go over here for a minute and take their side. Abraham had been given this custom by God. (laughs) After he'd believed God and because of his belief was considered righteous before God. Now when that happened, he was actually uncircumcised. He believed God and was considered righteous before God. It's important to point out that this custom was given to the Jews by God, like I said, as an everlasting covenant in their flesh, and it was unthinkable for any of them that that anyone could have a relationship with God without this. That's what they're thinking. That's their custom. That's their everything they know about walking with God is walking with God this way. (laughs) And while they would admit freely, if they were honest, that no one actually successfully followed all the law of Moses without failing at one point, right? I think they could probably all come to that place. Well, yeah, no one actually fulfills it all, all the time, without failing somewhere. It was still not easy for them to give that up. Okay? So that's, that's what's going on with the Jews right now as they're talking. So Peter went on. Peter went on. After reminding them that God had clearly directed the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles and that they received the Holy Spirit and were cleansed even in their uncircumcised condition, he said this. He said this. Why are you... His whole tone changed from kind of explaining things 
to now he's like asking a question that's kind of personal, okay? Why are you putting God to the test? Or as the message version says, why are you trying to out-God God? (laughs) Why are you trying to out-God God? Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is not from God for the Gentiles. This is from you. This is not from God for the Gentiles. This is from you. That's what he's saying. And he ended his statement with this way. And if you watched the, the uh, verses, you may have noticed that the font for verse 11 was big because I think this is the key verse. <laughs> he said, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Just as they will. We believe we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And when he said this, the assembly fell silent. That's why I'm whispering. And when he said this, the assembly fell silent. This was shocking. Everything they ever thought that they knew about what it means to walk with God was being challenged here. Talk about deconstruction. That's what was going on here. Their faith was being deconstructed before their very eyes. And they didn't, so they they just hushed in silence. Could it be that these Gentiles could not only become believers as they are, but that these Gentiles from a pagan culture could help us understand more accurately what we actually believe? Yes, absolutely that's what was happening. Absolutely that was what happening. These folks from a pagan culture were coming to them with questions that they had never asked before. And so it's not that they adopted what the culture believes, but they were listening to the culture, and they were, answer- they were saying, that's a question we hadn't thought of before. Let's go back to the Lord and find out about that one. And that's what they were... So when we live in our culture... Oh boy, okay, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. When we live in our culture, we don't just slam it and say, they're all out to lunch. We listen. Because if we really listen, it will help us understand what we believe better. And that's what was going on here. These pagans, if you will, let me use that word, were helping them to understand what they believed. (laughs) So they fell silent and listened to what Barnabas and Paul had to say. And as Paul and Barnabas finished, you could feel the sense of the room. I don't know if you, if you, if you read into this, but you could feel the sense of the room turn to a certain individual in the room. A certain individual in the room. To a man known for his commitment to the importance of works validating someone's faith in Christ. To a man who is considered a leader, perhaps the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And that's not Peter, it's James. 
the brother of Jesus, or half-brother, if you will. Oh, my. What is James going to say about this? You can, just feel, <laughs> can you just feel the room being like, <gasps> if this is true, James is going to have something to say about this. Well, James stood up, and he basically validated what Peter said, concluding with this. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, James. (laughs) But we should write to them, we should write to them to abstain from certain things, from sexual immorality and eating certain foods. He then offers this explanation, because it says four. If you look in your Bible, it says four. That means he's explaining what he just said. He offers this explanation for these requirements. Because from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. And he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, okay, abstain from sexual immorality, And abstain from eating these foods because, do you know, in every city that you're in, there's Jews sitting there reading the law of Moses every Sabbath. That's happening every Sabbath. So abstain from these things. In Paul's letters afterwards, in Corinthians and Romans and Galatians, in Paul's letters afterwards, we understand that these requirements we're not being given by James as a condition of salvation, but as an exhortation for personal purity and sensitivity among the Gentiles to not flaunt their freedom in an uncaring way before the Jews who are also coming to Christ. But they were expressing it differently. So when you come to Christ... Be devoted to Jesus, love God, have your quiet time every morning, but just abstain from these things. Um, and so, and then he says, this is why. Because all your Jewish brothers, they're, reading, they're still reading the law of Moses every Sunday or every Sabbath. Okay, so they put these instructions in a letter, and they sent it with Paul and Barnabas and a few select others, including an interesting guy named Silas, which we'll hear about later. Uh, to the Gentiles, believers in, in Antioch, Cilicia, and, and Syria. And when they read it, they smiled. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Yes, all those things that Paul said that we should believe, he's right. And the Jew- Council of Jerusalem, the Jewish believers have agreed. Yes. So they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Okay, so that's the first debate I want to talk about. Uh, and, and, but there's a second debate that happened toward the end. Some of you may know this particular thing that happened. So they're back up in Antioch, and Paul has this great idea. It's led by the Holy Spirit. He says, let's go back and visit all the people that we visited on the first trip. Let's go back and see how they're doing. But a debate happened between Peter, sorry, between Paul and Barnabas over whether to bring Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, with them on the second missionary journey. Barnabas, you can imagine, Barnabas wanted to take him with him. 
But Paul thought best not to, since he had left them the first time. I think I mentioned that last time I was up here. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed sharply about this. Sharply. So sharply that they divided. Barnabas went with, uh, went with Mar- John Mark to Cyprus, where, which is where Barnabas is from. Paul went with Silas to uh, Asia Minor, closer to where he's from. And they continued their work. And we'll just leave that with the Lord. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that one right now. Well, not, not quite. I'm going to come back to it in just a second. So what do we do with these disagreements? What can we learn from these debates that happened? The de- well, the second one, the second one I just talked about, illustrates attention. It's attention perhaps be, uh, about, between being perhaps overly optimistic about people, like John Mark. It's overly optimistic about people like John Mark, and being realistic, calling it like it is about people. It's a tension, actually, that I find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'm looking over at Dennis and uh, Lauren because we talked about this last time we got together. It's a tension that I didn't know if I, know if I noticed it before. But in verse 7, 1 Corinthians 13 says this. Have you ever read this and been bothered by it a little bit? This is what it says. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all all things. Love endures all things. Really? Are you kidding me? No boundaries on that one? Seriously? Should we be so optimistic about people that we become enablers of bad behavior? Is that what this is talking about? It is talking about being pretty optimistic, isn't it? Love does these things. Okay. Well, look at the verse just before it. And put that intention. Love also does not rejoice in the wrong. It rejoices in the right. Boom. When it comes to leadership selection, when it comes to helping people grow in their walk with God, we need people like Barnabas who are optimistic about people. And we need people like Paul who tell it like it is. (laughs) We need both. Paul and Barnabas needed each other. They did. And the story will bear that out. This morning I asked in the, in the class, in the youth group, I said, who's right, Paul or Barnabas? And we kind of debated it a little bit. It was kind of fun. And, and as we realized later, they both had an angle on the truth. And you know Mark, he wrote the Gospel of Mark. He's not, maybe he wasn't quite fit for duty for that time, but he is worth investing in. Totally. There is a valid tension illustrated in that debate. Okay, that's that. Let me come back to the first one. The, the, fir- the first thing that we spend most of our time on this morning. It is a debate, s- similar to the other one. It's a debate around the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel and what is not the gospel? What is necessary for salvation in Christ and what is merely a custom of your, of your cultural context? And how do we bring the genuine gospel to various cultural contexts? 
This is a tension that is sometimes expressed by the tension between the purity of the gospel and the mobility of that gospel. What is the gospel and how do we move it? (laughs) There's actually a tension. And sometimes it's actually not a tension at all in this case. Sometimes those concerns actually work in the same direction. (laughs) So on one hand, we have the purity of the gospel. What is necessary to be saved? And you saw my key verse, verse 11. It's what Peter said. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they are. He summed it up in one sentence. Can you do that? Sum up the gospel in one sentence? These, this is the bare bones. This is the pure gospel. But that gospel, like I said, needs to move to all the people, to Jews and Gentiles. For the Jews, it was lived out in a context of ceremony and customs related to the law of Moses, including circumcision. That's how it was lived out. We live out that in this context. For the Gentiles, it was lived out in a polytheistic culture where people are sacrificing food to idols. That's what's going on in their culture. Idols which the believers in Jesus would come to realize are just wood and stone. They ain't real. They ain't real. So their practice of their faith would include not only freedoms from the circumcision customs, but freedoms to eat bacon and lobster. (sighs) Thank God. I just threw that in there. But to encumber the gospel with these constraints in an effort to maintain what the Jewish believers thought was the pure gospel was in tension with that gospel being mobile to the people. And it caused them to actually come to grips with the pure gospel and separate it from their customs. That's what's going on here. And there's so much more to say. I I wish I could go on all day and we could have some discussions on this because this is a huge issue in our culture today. Huge issue on how do we do this. And if you'd like to learn more about it, study the letters of Paul, including Galatians, Romans, and Corinthians, where he reviews this event, the Jerusalem Council, specifically (laughs) in Galatians, and you'll see what Paul... This is what Luke is writing in Acts about what's going on in the Jewish, Jewish council. If you want to see what Paul says about what's going on in the Jewish council and what led up to it, go read Galatians. He says it in the first person. So it's another take on it, but I'll let you do that. For now, let me simply walk away with this. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. This grace is freely given to us through the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross on what we call Good Friday. Repent and believe in Jesus today. And this gospel of grace is available to all people. To all people. For those of you who believe in it, believe in it again. Believe in it this week. Because that same grace is operative for you every day. And we need to experience the grace of God in the gospel every day. I remember sharing this with one of 
my friends who'd been walking with God for a long time, and they were struggling with a certain issue, and I was able to preach the gospel to them again. And as they reacquainted themselves with the gospel of grace that saves their soul from from sin and shame, they looked at me and said, Oh, Mike, I love the gospel. I love the gospel. Well, don't you think that if we love the gospel and we experience it today, that we'd be more likely to share it with our friends? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's keep it unencumbered by our customs, and let's communicate it in ways that are contextualized to people in other cultures, including our neighbors across the street. Other cultures, including our neighbors across the street, which live in a different culture sometimes. So the gospel of Jesus, the gospel to the Gentiles, to all the people, entered Jerusalem and triumphed over the obstacles of cultural customs. So we celebrate today Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem with a different kind of triumphal entry. May this gospel of Jesus enter our hearts today to bring triumph over sin, guilt, and shame as we repent and believe in him today. And may we maintain the purity and the mobility of the gospel so that it may enter many hearts with forgiveness and freedom. That's the sermon for today. So let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we believe that we are saved from our sins and the penalty of death because of our sins. We are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. We believe in you and your work on the cross for us, dying for our sin to give us forgiveness and freedom. Help us to walk in that faith, forgiveness, and freedom. Help us to abide in it today. And help us to share it with our friends as we enjoy its fruits without any cultural baggage, or as little as we can. May this gospel triumph victoriously over sin and death, guilt and shame, as it enters our hearts and the hearts of many. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.